Hey, welcome to the Learn With Lowell Show. I'm Lowell, the serial entrepreneur, startup advisor, and your host. Uh, we speak to experts, scientists, leaders from around the world. And today we're joined with Sebastian Brunemeyer, who uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say where you're at, but you're not near me. And so that's kind of nice. So I'm getting a different spot. And he's not in the mountains, I asked, and he teased me on this. So uh, Sebastian, welcome to the show. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And actually, it's allowed to be known. I'm in Puerto Rico, which is uh, territory of the United States where there's excellent incentives for R&D. So if there are any biotech founders out there or anyone who does manufacturing of biopharma products, you can get a 50% cash back R&D rebate on all spend, including salaries. So if you spend $10 million in R&D, you get 5 million cash back at the end of the year. And you can reinvest that money that you get back, that 5 million, you get 2.5 back the following year, and so on and so on. And it asymptotes toward one. So uh, it's really a fantastic place to be doing R&D. It's just sort of this hidden gem. And it's a part of the US, so it's US law. But anyway, if anyone's curious to come down to Puerto Rico and set up a lab, or a biologics manufacturing facility, let me know. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, 50% of Puerto Rico's GDP is actually biopharmaceutical manufacturing. It's it's this uh, medicine cabinet of America. So, uh, so yeah, most of the big pharmas are already there with huge manufacturing facilities. So that's my pitch for Puerto Rico. And it's a nice place to live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was recently talking to Lisa of SENS and she was talking about how the Midwest offers a lot of grants in and like pretty extensive grants to get people to move out there. And so it's interesting to hear that Puerto Rico has similar things to get people to move to there and, and build. I, I'm familiar with it uh, for one other reason that we've talked previously, but I, I did hear that it was good at uh, manufacturing. Like they did a lot of drug manufacturing. I didn't know that they did the R&D component there as well. Just, is that like something that the U.S. does for Puerto Rico? Or is there Puerto Rico just like kind of like a sovereign fund tax that like allows you to get it back? Like how do they... How, how does a small little island pay 50% back to these large corporations that are investing so much in the community? Yeah, sure. So um, it basically comes out of GDP. So it's the bargain mm -hmm. they make with the companies that they kind of cut them in on the GDP growth that results because uh, Amgen just set up a $3 billion facility there. And that's good for the economy, you know, three, 3 billion plus. And so they basically mm -hmm. do a deal where uh, if you bring in capital and talent, they'll give you a cut of the GDP growth that results from that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's a territory of the United States. They set their own policies for to a large extent. Um, so would definitely recommend people look into it. And is that are you going to build immuno age immune age? Sorry, immune age in Puerto Rico? Or I know that when you look on the internet, there's not that much about it other than it exists, and we're focusing on this area. Is that are you going to build it out there? And take advantage of these uh, of these fifty uh, percent rule? Yeah, um, Immune Age is in stealth mode, so we haven't put up a website yet. Um, but we have, you know, fairly uh, good team, I think, of people involved. And right now, a lot of our operation operations are in Switzerland, in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is also a nice place. Um, but they, we are setting up labs in Puerto Rico as well. So hopefully, in the next several months, we'll be up and running there. Hmm. Is there? Is there anything that Switzerland offers or is it just a place that you guys were comfortable with in terms of the team? Like what, what would drew you to Switzerland as well? Yeah, Switzerland, um, Puerto Rico and Switzerland are probably my favorite places in the world, actually. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, Switzerland, Swiss history as well. You know, there's this great book called Swiss Made about the Swiss economic miracle. How did this landlocked country without natural resources 
become such, you know, one of the highest GDP per capita, um, you know, highest per capita innovation centers in the world. Um, so it kind of breaks down some of the reasons behind that. And it's not the banking system. Banking systems like 10% of GDP. Uh, it's actually, the authors argue, something to do with the political system where it's highly decentralized. Mm. There's no strong federal government. Um, it's in the Canton system and huge investment in education. Um, like to, to see how decentralized Switzerland is, you know, I could ask someone off the street, who's the president of Switzerland? Nobody knows because there isn't one. I mean, technically there's one, but I think they only serve for a year or two and they switch, they, they shift through a committee. So there's no one, you know, dictatorial uh, leader of Switzerland. Um, and so they've really set up a good system over there and they also have low taxes and just not that much bureaucracy compared to most of the European countries. And, and again, you know, being centered within the EU, but not part of the EU is also advantageous for trade. So anyway, Switzerland, a big fan. We have an important collaborator there. And so we uh, had an opportunity to set up some activities there, but we'd like to continue building our activities in Switzerland and growing in Puerto Rico as well. Hmm. Is there going to be a, a third location or is that like too much complexity given the stage of it? Well, the beauty of um, biotech today is that you can do it in a really distributed, geographically distributed mm. fashion. So you can even do whole companies that are virtual, that have no labs of their own, but they contract with contract research organizations, CROs. And so even Big Pharma does a lot of that. Um, you know, there was one example of a company uh, backed by Forbion Capital in the Netherlands that sold for $2 billion and they had two full-time employees. Everything else was outsourced. Mm. So we're coming into this brave new world where... You can really get a lot done without having to invest the capex in your own facilities. That applies largely to um, single asset companies, um, where you can outsource it to CROs and clinical trial centers. But when you have a platform company, it's a little harder to do that. So we are a platform company, and so it makes sense for us to have physical labs. Um, our third location is most likely going to be in Oxford, UK. Um, I studied in Oxford. I know a lot of people there. It's a very good place to do science. The first company I launched, Samsara Therapeutics, around autophagy enhancement, is there uh, with a growing team in Oxford. So, and we have an important collaborator there as well. So, likely to be operating in the UK uh, probably mid next year. Um, and then, you know, UK does have a R&D subsidy as well. It's about twenty seven cents on the dollar, twenty seven percent cash back. So that's not bad, but it's it's not as good as fifty percent that you get in Puerto Rico, and you get certain tax advantages too for U.S. citizens uh, working in Puerto Rico too. So anyway, but, that's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so, sometimes I get a, a comment every now and again. It's like, well, why do you talk about shop? And it's like there are people listening in that are that want to start companies, and no one talks about these things. Like Google. You could Google some of the key terms that we use, but then you still wouldn't figure out, oh, like Switzerland has these advantages, the UK has these advantages, or Puerto Rico has these advantages. Like, there's so much stuff out there to help people, but the problem is, like, there's not really a good resource to to manage it. I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, curious to see how ChatGPT uh, merges with kind of what Bing's doing with ChatGPT, where you can say, hey, I'm looking for this type of content, and they can, like, query everything and then give it to you in a digestible format. That's pretty interesting because it kind of brings back the discoverability of Google that was kind of deleted without index everything was in terms of like you open up um like I don't know if you ever did this as a kid but you open up an Excel uh an, uh, an encyclopedia Britannica and it's like oh what's this and you can kind of explore that where um you could where like when I use chat GPT like I can explore entire new concepts 
pretty efficiently while getting links and all this other stuff at the same, same time. So I hope, that's my way of saying like, it's pretty difficult now, but I, I imagine it's going to get easier as we take indexing and add context to it at the same time and then have like a little tiny AI thing that kind of feeds it to us. But you you, you talk about, yeah. uh, I think one one thing that you, I don't know to the extent are you, that your role at VitaDAO, VitaDAO, VitaDAO. Like, I know yeah, you're VitaDAO. Yes, thank you. The uh, I have my d- uh, dumb mid uh, Midwestern uh, tongue when it comes to uh, some names. You should hear how I speak Spanish. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like I'm mooing half the time. But the my I, I have a friend who literally every time I try and speak Spanish, he literally moves at me <laughs> as I try to say some of the words. But uh, it's w- tough for me too, lo- coming from San Francisco. Yeah, I don't have any advantage in speaking Spanish. But come spend some time in Puerto Rico. You can pick some up. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I, I intend to do some traveling later in the year, so uh, maybe I'll swing down to Puerto Rico. The, uh, when you look, when you hear about Switzerland and you learn about it through books, it's clearly an interest of yours. You look at the business side of it. You're also extremely educated. I think if anyone looked at your rap sheet, like they're like, this is a very impressive guy. Do you, but you also do a variety of different things at the same time. I imagine like you get bored, not like you get bored easily, but I think you have a type of mind that likes to be stimulated. And so when you look at, um, whether it's immune age or the other one is health span capital. Do you use, did you learn anything from like the Swiss book or uh, any resource like that to build the system of investment? I, I imagine I, I said VitaDAO because they're decentralized. So it's like, I imagine you or saw a simile in the Swiss model and thought, Hey, that might work really well on that, that system. But I'm generally curious what is motivating the way you're presenting your time and energy which my guess is you don't waste your time or energy easy, easily. Like it's always spent very uh, preciously. So I'm curious, like, how did you decide these different uh, verticals to go down? And then what made you feel confident they were things that would be worthy of your time, if that makes sense? Like like yeah. the book, for instance, I think the decentralized nature kind of gives decentralized um, like blockchain type stuff a little bit more credence other than just being kind of like a buzz item. Sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for your kind words. I, uh, I'm not a paragon of efficiency quite yet, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I'm just kind of bad at turning down opportunities that I think really need to occur. So, and, and there's synergies between the things that I do. Mm-hmm. So like the main, main, uh, thing that occupies my time at the moment is immune age. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I help run a venture fund, Healthspan capital, which is investing in longevity biotech, long bio and regenerative medicine. We were technically the most active uh, longevity, long bio investor last year. We did 15 deals, um, still relatively small checks, but you know, if you're no investors who are interested in participating, send them our way. Um, and in addition to that, uh, I sit on some boards and advise a couple of organizations. One that I spend a lot of time advising is VitaDAO. So VitaDAO is quite a cool new sort of, model for how it's like an alternative to the corporation in a sense it's like the corporation started in i don't know 1850s or early 1800s united states the modern c corp uh and it actually existed for a finite period of time to build a road or a bridge or whatever and then it would go away but now we have these immortal c corps and and they're uh you know the biggest companies on earth and very powerful well it, it's kind of a testament to the power of a new legal or organizational structure Venture capital funds are very similar. I was just reading this book, uh, Venture Capital and American History, I think it's called. And uh, it was, you know, there's a whole chapter on how the limited partnership, the LP limited partnership structure was so essential to creating the risk sharing model of a venture fund. Um, so you have these, these contrivances, these sort of 
imaginary things uh, that can actually make a big deal, uh, make a big difference in the world historically. So, and so um, DAOs are similar. DAO, a DAO for those who are not familiar, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, and it doesn't have any geographical footprint per se. It's not incorporated in any particular country. It runs on the Web3 crypto rails. So people are compensated in crypto. Uh, people you know, list assets on the blockchain that can then be transacted. And this can apply. These DAOs can be groups of people who get together for many different purposes. One DAO you know, made a bid to buy a copy of the US Constitution. Um, uh, other DAOs are trying to cure various rare genetic diseases, right? So I think this is actually the most powerful application of DAOs in biomedicine is, you know, you have people who um, have these rare genetic diseases, they can be debilitating, they can be life threatening, you know, they can be affecting children, and pharma is nowhere to be seen. Um, pharma is neglecting these diseases as they're neglecting infectious diseases, called neglected tropical diseases sometimes, because there isn't a market for it. It's not going to be profitable for their business model because there just aren't enough patients or you can't charge enough for the product. And this leaves a lot of people behind. So 20% 20, 20 of the entire global population suffers from some rare genetic disease, 20% of the population. But if you if you fractionate that down to their subsets, you know there may only be a couple thousand or even a couple hundred people with this particular a rare disease. And so it's below the radar of pharma. So what do you do? You're a parent, you know, your child is suffering from this disease. No one's really working on it. Maybe a couple academic groups. Um, you know, you can form these nonprofit organizations that kind of uh, donate and try to raise awareness and so on. Or you can take matters into your own hands with a DAO, which is you pool capital, you raise capital, you deploy it into academic labs with translational research that may have new medicines or new interventions for this population. And you can own some of the IP, the intellectual property that you're financing, which is the lifeblood of the modern technological economy. It's an intellectual property for better or worse. I actually believe that patents on balance hold back innovation in society. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of evidence for this. There's a good book about it uh, written by Buldrin and Levine, two Federal Reserve economists called Against Intellectual Monopoly. And uh, check out the uh, podcast from my friend Nicholas Anzinger at Infinitive Fund, the Stranded Technologies podcast. He has one of the authors, Levine, on there, in, and he breaks it down. So anyway, but you know, patents are a necessary evil in the current system of drug development. And so, um, what if you're a DAO? Um, you you're uh, part of this rare disease DAO. You fund some research in a university that finds a new medicine. You patent it you raise additional capital to spin it out in a company or, or perform the clinical trials to get it to a stage where a pharma company will take it on or a regulator will approve it, uh, or maybe even approve it conditionally for like compassionate use, then you can start generating efficacy data. And then it's clear that it's a no brainer. And on an individual basis, when you have one rare disease, the market may not be large enough. The total market size may be a couple million or 10 million in total, the whole world. But if you bundle these together, if you bundle together 10 or 100 or 1,000 of these, you mitigate the risk and you create a large enough market so that there's an investable asset class there. So that's the example with rare disease DAOs. I think that's an absolute no-brainer, and it's already happening. There are a handful of these in existence. Another reason to structure 
these things as a DAO, because there are these foundations for rare genetic diseases and others, and many other diseases, you don't have as much accountability as a donor. Um, you're treated as a donor rather than an investor who has information rights and has certain protections. So if you're operating as a DAO, it's kind of a hybrid between being a donor because uh, it's mm -hmm. mission oriented, but also you can see a potential return, right? And so, um, and and furthermore, you have more control over the operation. So for example, if you donate to a foundation, you know, your money is basically, you know, they spend it however they want. You can't recall the people running it. You don't have much control unless you're a huge donor. But the DAO token holders in aggregate are similar to shareholders in a the company. They can vote. And this is one of the really key propositions of the DAO structure is it's more democratic than the current uh, corporate C-Corp, for example, structure, where everybody who's a token holder has the ability to vote on anything that is put up uh, for a vote. It's actually similar in Switzerland, <laughs> to tie it to Switzerland, more of a direct democracy, where I think you need 100,000 signatures to put something up for a plebiscite for a vote and population-wide vote. Um, and so I think that's healthy. Um, you know, the system can be gamed in various ways in the United States. The media controls a lot of the narrative. Uh, but uh, but yeah, anyway, so so DAOs um, are a very cool new organizational structure. There are a lot of other advantages and there's some disadvantages, obviously. Um, another advantage is you can sort of collaborate with and employ people across jurisdictions. So if I'm a US C-Corp and I want to hire someone in, you know, Berlin or Azerbaijan or, you know, Svalbard, um, it's really not trivial. I have to find an organization over there that will employ them on paper. I employ them as a consultant, and then I have to deal with all of this logistical headache. And DAOs allow people to work sort of like on a consultant basis and an, uh, on an as-needed basis. So for example, like for me, if I have a couple hours to spare in a week, um, I'm you know asked to review these projects that are submitted to Vita DAO, various longevity projects, that are up for funding and I'll analyze the science and business case. And maybe I can't spare more than a couple hours a week in any given week, but you know, it, it allows us to tap a huge talent pool rather than trying to hire them full time and, and so forth. So we've got, you know, incredible professors and biotech founders and pharma people, um, you know, uh, not quite donating their time. I mean, they can get compensated for the time through this model. So we really have grown very rapidly in, in about two years We've raised significant capital. I don't know the total, you know, between five and 10 million in capital. Um, and uh, we've deployed it into over 20, 30 projects, biotech companies, early stage companies, uh, companies at the Valley of Death for spinning out from universities, academic researchers uh, through IP NFTs and so on. So, you know, I've been really pleased to see the pace of progress. And we've got some thousands of people involved. And one of the advantages is, you know, a venture fund might have a team of 10 or 20 people if they're pretty big. They can only do so much deal sourcing and so much diligence. But if we have a thousand people, <laughs> we have the best um, deal sourcing, asset sourcing, deal flow engine out there. And, you know, pharma has taken note, you know, Pfizer Ventures put in half a million dollars in our last round. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan is a very smart cookie, uh, also investor in Immune Age has invested. He's one of the leading lights in the crypto and sort of network state decentralized governance world. Um, so, you know, it's still very early, but the caliber of people that VitaDAO has attracted has been incredible. And that's a testament to the core team. Uh, I'm I'm just a lowly um, working group member in the longevity uh, side, but 
there's a core team of you know 10 to 20 people who are really driving this forward every single day. And so uh, hats off to them. So that's a bit about VitaDAO. Check out the website. Um, happy to direct people there. If you're a grad student or you're just, you don't have to be a scientist either. If you just have skills that you want to contribute to this mission and you can basically partake financially in the upside if things go well, um, you know, it's a no brainer to get involved and the team is very welcoming. So feel free to reach out to any of them. It sounds really powerful, especially just the, well, there's a couple aspects that I like in particular, the the fact that you actually have a say over how things are governed versus that. that's one thing that I, I'm very, I've recently been gotten into just reading the nonprofit tax returns to see like how they actually spend their money because there's stuff like the pink ribbon of NFL for breast cancer research. I think it's like a penny on a dollar goes to actual breast cancer research. It's wow. like, why do you need 99% to just go to, to BS? Uh, so I, that type of bloat and nonprofit sounds like it really wouldn't fly in a DAO. I think that, you, yeah, which is a, a really critical because when people give their money, there's a, a number of nonprofits that I know where I literally just say, can you just be more open about what you do with your money and for every dollar, what what comes of it? And they're like, well, I don't know, that's kind of complicated. It's like, well, okay, then, then don't ask for people for their money because <laughs> if you can't tell them exactly, if you can't draw a string for my dollar to the change that you're saying that you can create, why, let's just cut that string and I'm going to keep my dollar and put it somewhere else. So that's, that's really powerful. Uh, and the other side of it where there's a voting mechanism, I think that's pretty cool because then people have a stake you know, people have this like stake in it versus in a nonprofit. Like I give my dollar away. It's like, oh, that's nice. I pat myself on the back. I go about my day, I guess. I write it off on my taxes. Uh, but that's about it. Where in this way, you're you're multiplying buy-in and stakes. And then the third thing that I think is really interesting is that people always talk about how they want to be in investments. Like even like people that don't necessarily qualify to be an investor. I think it's like 10, like up, it's like 500,000 or like $10 million in assets or something to be an investor. I figured there's like a technical measurement that the US government says you have to have before you can yeah, make the uh, accredited yeah. investor requirement. Yes. Yeah. So we should talk about this because it's kind of insane. United States considers itself, you know, the uh, epicenter of entrepreneurship and risk-taking and innovation and so forth. And, and in many respects, that's true. I'm not, you know, I have my beefs with the United States, but, um, you know, it is the case that it's the deepest capital markets and most entrepreneurial country that I'm aware of. But there is this fly in the ointment. There is this real um, hypocrisy, which is this accredited investor requirement. Um, I ran up against this uh, when I was, you know, I'd say pretty well qualified to invest in companies. And yet I didn't have the assets uh, that I could mm -hmm. prove to be of a certain value to be able to write checks. So just for those who were unaware, um, accredited investors need to have, you know, made, I think it's above 250K for two years in a row, or they need to, uh, have like two million in assets separate from their 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 home uh, and a bunch of other requirements. So you know they have to be financially pretty well off um, just in order to invest in a private company. That's it. So the government is basically saying if you don't have this level of money set aside, you are not sophisticated enough to invest where you would like to. But if you want to go to Las Vegas and you want to put your life savings, you know, on, on blackjack, you know, roll the roulette, uh, go ahead by all means. Or if you want to YOLO your entire savings on options in the stock market, uh, public, pu publicly traded stock, go for it. Um, and so there's this weird double standard where it's like, oh, well, the government really cares. The government really wants to protect people from losing their money to these 
you know, startup companies, God forbid. Um, but you can literally gamble uh, your money away and where the, the risk is basically guaranteed. You gamble long enough, you're guaranteed to lose your money. Whereas with a startup, not only can you help a new technology or service or something good come, come about in the world, the money goes directly in the pocket of the company. So when you invest in a publicly traded security, a stock, for example, and say, I don't know, Tesla, um, the money doesn't go in their pocket. It's just exchange with somebody else who holds the stock. Whereas when you invest in a startup, it really goes, it makes a difference to the operations of the company. And so, um, you know, a lot of um, administrations have recognized this weird situation. There was under Obama, there was this new legislation called the Jobs Act that makes it easier for companies to raise money. But still, there's the accredited investor thing. And a couple of years ago, you know, I was working <laughs> as a VC uh, at a venture fund. Um, you know, I, I launched a biotech company that went to be, went on to be pretty successful. You know, I was at the PhD program at Oxford in biochemistry. I had a master's degree in biotech business management. Um, you know, if I was not qualified to write a check to a biotech startup company, you, you know, it, it's a pretty high bar for that. And, and that was very frustrating. Thankfully, it only applies to U.S. citizens. The U S government only cares about protecting its U S citizens from, from investing in startup companies, but they can solve that. It's going to be a huge um, boom for startup activity, um, especially since banks don't really loan to startups. And most startups actually don't ever get venture capital. It's the savings, the private savings of the individual or their family and people like this or angel investors. Most startup companies don't ever raise VC money from professional institutional investors. Uh, so if we could just make it easier for capital to get in the hands of entrepreneurs, I think that would be huge. That's another advantage of DAOs. Um, you know, U.S. citizens will have to figure out the situation with their own tax advisor or their own, you know, uh, lawyer. But um, international people can invest in a DAO, um, and they're not really buying a security. They're basically purchasing rights to control over what that DAO does with the capital. And that capital, if it's invested wisely, which so far I think it has been, can be multiplied massively. And then the value of that voting right, uh, that control right, will rise in proportion. But there's never any promise that a dividend will be paid or will buy back stock and return capital to shareholders, because the point of a DAO, at least Vita DAO, is for it to be an evergreen type structure that continues on in perpetuity, and just the snowball effect continues on. So to give you one case study of how this might work, there's a, an organization called the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, and they uh, were very successful working with a pharmaceutical company called Vertex. It was small at the time, kind of nurtured it to become a big thing that it is today. I don't know what it's worth, 50 billion or I don't know, something. And Vertex um, and the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation got the first drugs approved in a very long time for cystic fibrosis. It's a very serious, rare genetic disease. And um, it put the returns from that drug, put on the balance sheet billions of dollars the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And they were able to use that money to reinvest in new medicines. And it's a virtuous cycle. Because one of the dirty secrets of pharma, of which there are many, believe me, is, I sound like our president, believe me, there are many, um, <laughs> is bio, biopharma, the industry, pays out a significant amount of its profits as dividends or stock buybacks to shareholders. Um, and pharma is not mission-oriented at all. It is legally, by fiduciary responsibility, bound to maximize profit, to do everything within its power to maximize profit as long as it's within the bounds of the law, and they kind of fudge the law a lot of the time, too. So 
you know, this is a problem because anytime you have a pharma company that buys, you know, a small biotech, that asset turns out to be successful in the clinic, gets approved as billion dollars a year sales, blockbuster drug, they're paying out a proportion of that, you know, 10, 15, 20% or something like that, paying it out to shareholders. And then their shareholders spend it on whatever they reinvest it in, you know, the broad stock market index, or they spend it on whatever they want to buy. So that money is actually leaking out. It's being siphoned away from biomedical mm. research. And, and we don't want that. We want, my view is, if you don't have your health, you really have nothing. You can't enjoy life. Um, and so I would like to see as much capital go into the, the healthcare and biotech space and not be wasted as possible. And so DAOs are a way for us to keep that money coming in and just keep growing and growing and deploying it to a large number of small deserving projects that are not getting funded today. Um, and so, you know, having been in biotech for, you know, almost 10 years now, I see that there's this valley of death. Uh, that's what we call mm -hmm. it, where you go from idea in a university or in a small biotech company, and it could be a revolutionary new idea. And the majority of the time, it just gets forgotten or sits on the shelf forever because it's very hard to raise that initial capital to pursue it. Um, so if there were a way to just provide more angel capital, um, early stage seed capital to these companies, even pre-company level uh, ideas and labs, uh, that would be a major, you know, solve a major pain point in the entire ecosystem of drug discovery. Yeah, I, um, I think in, a, in addition, it sounded like the Vita DAO, if you have extra time like yourself, and there's a lot of people, I think there's a, there's a term for this where people have a day job, they have their life, but they have like an extra 10% of their, their life where they're just like, I want to put my brain towards something. Yeah. So I like this idea that like, no matter who's out there right now, you're working in college, you know, you're, you're having a day, but then you have a, like an extra hour to spend, you could spend it helping an organization like VitaDAO. And then you get, uh, I imagine you get compensated in some sense, like they give you like a token or some, some kind. And so then you're, you're investing your excess mental uh, capacity to benefit your future and the future that you want to see it's it feels when i talk to people i imagine you're about my age or 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 younger it feels like the the potential they have to make an impact in the world is wait until you're older wait until you're older wait until you're older like even even early stage startup uh, i imagine when you first started your your company there was an element of like where's your gray hair you know, there's some investors that are just like, where's the silver hair? You know, I need a, I need a person here with the gray hair. And actually, I made a, I made a joke with George Church about this, like his uh, early, early silvering of his hair may have made his life a little easier because people look for those things. So like for, for, for a very long time, I think I was listen, listening to a, uh, his name is Peter here or something. Like he's a policy guy. He's on the Joe Rogan podcast and I've read his book ever since. And he said that like, uh, the millennials, it'll suck until we're in our sixties, but then it'll be nice again. It's like, well, that, that's like 30 years, you know, like, can we do something now to make our lives better and stuff? So I think when people have excess energy, it's like, well, I don't know where to put it. I can read a book. I can better myself. That's something that's always important. But then it's like, once you're after that, that quota, what do you do with that extra bit that could be benefit yourself? And it seems that from the time you're basically zero to maybe like 40 something, like you really don't get a lot of play yeah. in the world in terms of, that excess stuff. And so it sounds like an amazing opportunity to give people an opportunity, not to overuse opportunity, but to allow people to give that excess of themselves to something they care about and reap the rewards of that over the long term, which may have uh, a larger economic 
kickback than you know other things that they're doing in their lives so you can imagine yeah. someone who's living in middle america for like 30 cents on the dollar it's like really cheap out here uh and then has that extra time and money they can donate a component over it not donate but like put a, a component in there and it benefits all these different people and that feels good to do that uh, I've, I've put money into nonprofits before and it's like it goes in and they give like reports and stuff which is nice you know but uh i i like seeing as much as i can of how the inside works and i have investors investor friends where they let me see all their deal flow and like how things work and that's really nice but i'm pretty sure like most people don't get to see stuff like that and it's actually really neat to look to know and to see what's actually going on in the world i feel like you're more connected and i i hear uh from the comment section of people who write in for this show that they, there's a, like an element of hopelessness out there where they're like, well, I, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. It's like, do you have, do you have an extra hour a day? Maybe here's something you can do. Are you, yeah. are you passionate about this type of stuff? Are you passionate about this type of stuff? I think that's really powerful when totally. so many people, I think you're about my age group, uh, feel like they don't have an avenue to make an impact in the world. And that's really sad. Agreed. Agreed. There is so much untapped mental horsepower out there in the world, yeah. not just in the United States, but globally. Think about it. All of the billion people in India who are severely underemployed, but have the cognitive ability to really contribute, but they're just, you know, no one's there uh, offering them a job, right? So, so this is one thing I'm really hopeful about with DAOs is kind of transcending those artificial national boundaries that hold people back. I mean, it's, we have this huge bonus, this benefit to being born in the United States or in Europe or something like that. And these other people have this huge disadvantage and it's not fair. And so we should try to try to bring them up to the extent possible. There's someone you should talk to about that sort of bias against youth in a lot of mm -hmm. sectors, um, uh, which is um, 1517 Fund. Uh, Michael Gibson wrote a great book um, about what is it called? Paper Bell on Fire. And basically 1517 Fund, what they do is they back uh, radicals and young people and people have dropped out to do something cool. It was the first, uh, the, the first iteration of that is the Teal Fellowship. Um, mm -hmm. and this was where Vitalik Buterin, who created Ethereum, got his start. He'll actually be in Montenegro setting up this, uh, sponsoring this pop-up, uh, network state for longevity and crypto and Web3 and, uh, alternative governance forms, more democratic governance forms in, in Montenegro coming up. Uh, anyway, so there there is this bias that he writes about against young people. And if you look throughout history, you know, a lot, you're, you're kind of in your prime when you're, you know, teen and 20s, uh, you know, cognitive, cognitively, your IQ peaks, your energy level mm -hmm. peaks, uh, you know, your motivation probably peaks. Yeah, you don't have as much wisdom maybe, but you can couple a young energetic person with an older person who has that expertise. Um, and so the fact that in the case that 1517 Fund and others are making is the fact that we're tying up people in the best years of their lives, playing this arbitrary game, what Herman Hesse wrote, the blast glass bead game of academia, this weird complex game that nobody seems to understand what's the purpose of it, but you compete ferociously on this arbitrary game. It's like 5D chess. Um, well, we're doing that in academia today. We're keeping people in academia, jumping through these arbitrary hoops, not allowing them to do what they really want to do. So like, for example, say you're a high school student and you're a savant in math or you're a savant in art or whatever. Is it really a good use of this person's time to have them, you know, taking some other course that is not their passion? 
I tend to think, yeah, it's good to have people who are well-rounded, but society is not driven forward by those normies who are well-rounded. It's driven forward by those people who are very intelligent and inspired and geniuses and often a little unstable too and a little erratic and weird. And we need to find those people and and support them and sort of nourish this, this ultra-talented sort of class of prodigies out there. And when you're a very talented person, you often um, get depressed and cynical because if you're in the normal school system, you can't really relate to people around you. You feel lonely. You might get teased, um, whatever. And so, you know, that causes mental health issues. It causes them to drop out of society and so on. I mean, thank God for the internet because these really inspired people can meet and, you know, achieve new things. Um, but anyway, so the point is uh, there is, especially in a field like biopharma, uh, this premium to age and experience and so forth. And obviously experience is useful, but in the modern world of the internet, in the world where you can hire consultants, you can actually tap into this experience pretty effectively, or you read a lot of books that, you know, walk you through uh, what happened with these companies. What are the pitfalls? What are the opportunities? What's different? So, you know, experience um, is useful, but I think we should also really value energy, drive, motivation, and young people just really have that hunger that people with you know established careers and gray hair tend not to have. And then there's also the aspect of sort of rigidness of thought, where you know uh, I think it was Max Planck, the physicist, who said science progresses one funeral at a time, because you know you have some eminent professor who's enforcing this dogma on the whole field, kind of like what happened with Alzheimer's and the amyloid beta false dogma there. There's a lot of evidence for that now against it. Um, you know, you need to wait for these entrenched ideas to kind of melt away and allow new ideas to flourish. And so that really comes, tends to come with young people who are sick of, you know, the established order and they want to bring in something new. Um, so VitaDAO is a good way for these people to get started. Similar DAOs out there, um, you know, if someone would otherwise be maybe doing an internship during their PhD part-time or, or something like that, uh, they can get involved with VitaDAO no matter where in the world they are. And really it's mission-oriented because with longevity, we're all ultimately fighting for our lives and the lives of our loved ones in the whole world. Um, because, you know, death at present, death and decrepitude and aging is one of the only guarantees in life, if not the only guarantee presently. Um, people are afraid of climate change, you know, what it will do to the environment, but that's not guaranteed to kill all of us and cause us to suffer, you know, the torture of late life decrepitude. That's uh, not guaranteed. Like there's stuff we can do technologically and politically to mitigate anything uh, except for aging and disease. And there's this weird, I think Aubrey calls it this um, uh, pro-death, trance, something like that. You, you had him on the show. Uh, maybe you mentioned it where we have this like psychological coping mechanism where people try to avoid thinking about death, avoid thinking about old age. Um, and they also see it as somewhat of an inevitability because if they felt there was something that they could really do about it, uh, they would have to commit their lives to it, <laughs> something like that. Um, and that's the conclusion I've come to. So anyway, um, a lot of the people are really mission-oriented in the longevity space. Obviously, if you have a drug that slows aging, which these drugs exist, 
it'll be very valuable. People will make plenty of money on it. Okay. But a lot of the community at present in the earlier day, in the early days are more mission oriented. Um, money is, is kind of an afterthought. Whereas in most industries, other industries of the world, money is, is the prime driver. Uh, so, so that's something that's kind of nice about being in the longevity space. It's a little bit more idealistic, a little bit more um, grand of a vision than just making a profit. Mm-hmm. What are, um, there's a lot there to comment on though. I think I read once that at eight, after 18, you're, you start literally going downhill. Like you can start seeing like a, a, a decrease in your brain capacity, like your brain, um, CPU for lack of a well, better term. I, yeah, but... I, I, st- I studied psychometrics actually. So hmm. uh, it, it's a little bit better. Um, your IQ generally your working memory, um, peaks, uh, around your mid twenties, early to mid twenties. Uh, and, and it's a pretty slow downhill decline, you know, in your thirties and forties. But then when you hit your fifties and sixties, the, the derivative really, uh, intensifies. So, um, you know, to the extent that you can, and there are exceptions too. I gave a whole talk on this actually on YouTube, um, biochemistry of brain aging and therapeutics, something like that for the Oxford neuroscience club. Um, basically, uh, there are outliers and there are people who maintain very high level of cognitive function, even very late in, into old age. It's not clear whether that's diet and lifestyle modify. I mean, obviously it's modifiable, but to what extent is that genetic? If you want to be mm-hmm. functioning, you know, as a 30 year old, when you're 70, is that only going to be possible with the right set of genes? Or is that something that everyone can, can have if we have an optimal diet and lifestyle? I tend to think probably not there's a huge amount that is genetically fixed and determined, determined, which is unfortunate. But the good thing is we're working on gene therapy, embryo selection, uh, germline genetic engineering, these kind of tools that would kind of equalize the playing field and allow everybody to be performing at their maximum. Yeah, it sounds like that's really interesting. Like some of the like one of the number one comments I get is like people wanting me to like figure out like ask everybody what they do for longevity it's like i don't think anecdotal evidence on what people do is like the most interesting thing in the world the, uh, but it's still useful to gather data but i feel like that could be done in a form for for vita dow mm-hmm. it sounds like it's something that you're very passionate about but you're also doing health 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 span capital and immune age what why not like combine health span capital and vita dow and like build your own thing because you have a very like a, a very precise mind i think i mean i don't know I guess yeah, as cheers. long as you're happy with it. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. So Healthspan Capital works closely with VitaDAO. So Healthspan mm-hmm. Capital, we um, help spin out the first company from VitaDAO, which is Matrix Bio, which is in partnership with Vera Gorbanova, who is on the SAB of Healthspan Capital. She's one of the most original geroscientists professors out there. Uh, she works on comparative longevity and DNA repair and naked mole rat longevity and and things like this. So she's awesome. Everyone should check her out. And so the first spin out company is in partnership from VitaDAO is in partnership with HealthSpan. Hmm. And we're also co-investing and we're sharing deal flow. It's it's really good symbiosis, I think. <laughs> um, you know, uh, VitaDAO has the capacity to invest even earlier than HealthSpan does. HealthSpan is more like a traditional venture fund. We're early stage. We can do pre-seed and seed stage, but we can't really do it until there's a company established and a team of some description. Whereas VitaDAO, one of the really cool, unique selling features of uh, VitaDAO and organizations related like Molecule in Switzerland is they can fund academic research through sponsored research agreements. 
that are then the data is put on chain through an IP NFT, a non-fungible token that is liquidly traded. And then you can actually establish a price, uh, a valuation for pieces of science, pieces of intellectual property, which is quite new and useful because the way hmm. intellectual property is transacted today is not, there's no liquid market for it. There's, you have to, you know, you have your lawyer reach out to another company and they try to negotiate a license agreement and it's just a big mess. So, and no one knows what is available to be licensed. So anyway, there's a huge opportunity there, just creating a marketplace for intellectual property broadly. Okay. So HealthSpan Capital though, we, we tend to invest a little later than Vita Dow would. Um, and, you know, we back companies that are developing true Jero protectors, true medicines that slow the pace of aging, have the potential to address many different age-related diseases. Um, and so we'd like to see lifespan extension data, median, maximum lifespan extension data uh, in teams that are really committed to bringing the product to market for large-scale indications. The initial indication or clinical application the initial disease can be a, a small, rare genetic disease or something, but there has to be that plan to label expand in the future. And we think this thesis makes a lot of sense. One, because it's just starting to grow in prominence and in interest among the investor community. It's always better to be early at any of these trends, you know, being early in crypto, being early in internet, uh, being early in biotech, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 90s was advantageous. Um but also because we think that the success rate in getting new drugs to market, finding effective new medicines, is going to be a lot higher with a longevity drug. Because if you have a medicine, uh, a molecule that extends the healthy lifespan of multiple species, you know, yeast, worms, flies, mice, fish, whatever, uh, it's much more likely to work in humans than the current approach, where what pharma does currently is they will select a target, find a molecule that inhibits or activates that target, usually inhibits, and and then hope that that target is what's controlling the disease in humans. And then they create a contrived animal model of disease, like a genetically mutated mouse or a mouse that's injected with some toxin and say, you know, this is this kind of looks like the human disease. And so let's use this as an animal model of the human disease. Mm -hmm. And according to my friend, Jack Scannell, who's one of the most original thinkers in the sort of biopharma R&D space, he spent a lot of time at BCG and equity research um, at uh, UBS, the Swiss bank, and he's now leading a longevity biotech startup, Etheros, Etheros for, uh, Therapeutics, which we just invested in. Um, you know, he has published these papers in Nature Reviews Drug Discovery, pointing out what are the failure modes of big pharma? Why is big pharma's R&D efficiency declining? Uh, you know, every dollar that they raise from investors, they're actually more likely to burn that dollar and waste it than actually make a return on it. They're actually at present, their internal rate of return is less than their weighted average cost of capital, which means they're basically losing money on internal R&D, which is an issue. They recognize it's an issue. So that's why they're acquiring all these small biotechs and academic spinouts that are that are much more efficient. Um, anyway, so so one of the reasons why it makes sense to invest in longevity drugs that extend lifespan and enhance robustness um, is because we do not rely on these contrived animal models of disease, at least not to the same extent. If you have a drug that extends lifespan, enhances cognitive function, physical function, makes the animals look younger in every way that you look, that is not a contrived model. It's normal wild type aging as it occurs in nature. And it's quite conserved, quite similar to what happens in humans too. So 
we think that's going to be a much more accurate, high fidelity recapitulation of the human disease. And therefore, the success rate in the clinic will go up. And that's the number one factor in drug development is, you know, you put in millions, tens of millions of dollars getting a drug, you know, through phase one into phase two where it fails, you know, 70% of the time, 80% of the time it'll fail. Uh, the efficacy readouts. And so if you can move the needle even a little bit, that's worth a huge amount to the entire industry. And so um, so that's one of the reasons we're optimistic about these geroprotective medicines. The the comment on mice reminded me that I had two questions on this. You You had a talk and I did not cite the talk. It was about a year ago. And you talked about how there's a mouse bottleneck where mm. uh, you outlined, there's a mouse bottleneck and there, there was an opportunity. Like if any, I think you said something to the effect of, if anyone can raise mice in mass, come talk to us. Is that still going on? Is that still an opportunity for someone listening to work on? And was it a situational bottleneck because someone like Aubrey Gray is buying lots of mice? Or is it is the demand uh, consistent so someone could actually make a business to, to, to satiate that need? Yeah, so good point. Um, I don't know how much demand there is for this. Mm. I can say that I and the people I know in the long bio industry have significant demand, but I don't know if it's enough to create a super profitable organization. Um, but I know that pre-aged mice are sold out oftentimes and they're worth something like their weight in gold. So a little, you know, 50 gram mouse or whatever is worth, you know, approximately its own weight in gold. So if you could scale this up sufficiently, you could have a CRO that has pre-aged mice uh, you could perform lifespan studies in-house, on-site, or you could send them out to collaborators. Um, you know, I, I crunched the numbers a couple of years ago. It seemed to be a viable business case, especially if you set it up in Puerto Rico where you get 50% cash back. <laughs> so we're considering, you know, I got a couple of colleagues who are interested in setting this up in uh, Puerto Rico where there's a really state-of-the-art vivarium that's, you know, mostly sitting empty at the moment because it's newly built. Um, so there's a huge opportunity there. So we may dive into it. Um, yeah. And, and I think the demand for pre-age mice will increase from academic groups. Uh, I don't know what people are willing to pay. So the question is, can you charge more yeah. than they're currently being sold by Jackson Labs? Uh, someone can run the numbers. But when I did it sort of back of the envelope, uh, it, it seemed viable. So if anyone's interested in setting that up, get in touch with me because we will put in some initial seed capital and bring in our network. It's something that needs to exist. Uh, yeah. Sweet. Yeah. The, I was wondering about that because there's just, there's a lot of people in the Midwest that do R and D at, at um, some labs that I know, and they always um, have tons of mice. So I'm like, Oh, maybe they, some down the stream of that would be someone who could help. Uh, so I'll, I'll ping people about that. Maybe it'll be uh, a person who could help. The, yeah. The, Another thing, and this is uh, related to mice, but I think this talks about more like how useful mice are. You talked about in a recent interview, uh, I think it was a talk actually, we had a bunch of slides, if I'm remembering it correctly. Animal models are, this is a quote, animal models are unreliable for age-related diseases. We, we, you kind of were talking about this a, a minute ago, and I, I agree as well. It does, like like you're talking about, there's that valley death, there's that moment where things just don't translate over. Uh, you, you get it in uh, animal models, but it doesn't work in humans. And so I'm always wondering, what what do you what do you perceive the future should be to um, eliminate that? Is it modifying uh, a mouse to be more uh, similar to a human in terms of like our immune system, aging, etc., or is it some similar like um, 
organic chip or a synthetic model they think will better close the gap for for that huge discre- discrepancy in, in translation so basically in hitchhiker's guide of the galaxy the mice rule the world and it seems that like mice mice <laughs> like somehow uh you know setting themselves up for a very long and profitable life so yeah, how, how do yeah. we get that for humans totally yeah I, I knew i liked you because you're a fellow douglas adams fan that's the funniest book i've ever read by the way i was in stitches laughing every other page it was incredible um yeah so to some extent mice do run the pharmaceutical world (laughs) that's a good point um and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be that way uh there is some some amount you you can do with human genetic data now so like genes that are implicated in certain diseases if you drug those human genes those human targets there's stronger evidence that it'll work in humans this kind of thing um as for how to remedy this, you know, I think there's always a place for better animal models of disease. Uh, mm-hmm. And academics spend a lot of time working on this. You know, they spend their whole careers trying to make better animal models of disease, arguing over whose model is better. I think that's worth doing because it's basically what Jack Scannell calls a, a decision theoretic tool. It's it's a tool that you can use to kind of use as a proxy for, for something else in the future. It's a model um, and so we need those because it expedites this process. You know, the bottom line is that human clinical trials take a long time. You're you're limited by the pace of progress of a human disease for a disease like Alzheimer's. You know, it might be two years before you see, you know, a measurable delta in cognitive decline in a population of 100, 200 patients. So there's just really this like um, fundamental limit on the pace of how quickly you can you can get answers in humans. So we'll always have a place for animal models. And for in biology research, there's always an ideal animal model for whatever your research question is. To give you an example, mice are not a good model for telomere biology. I did a Fulbright fellowship on this. We were working on zebrafish instead um, because mice have very long telomeres. So for those who are new to the concept of telomeres, um, you have these these DNA sequences at the ends of your chromosomes, they're kind of like shoelace caps and they get frayed and damaged with age with each division and with cellular stress and other kinds of stress and damage. And uh, they're very important in aging. People dispute that, but I don't. I think the jury is absolutely in. They're critically important in aging. It's not clear that extending them will extend your lifespan, but it will, you know, organismal lifespan, but it definitely extends the lifespan of the cell. Every cell type that is immortal, like cancer cells, embryonic stem cells, et cetera, germline cells, they can at least transiently reactivate telomerase. And so telomerase is the immortality enzyme. There's no question about it. Check out Michael West's book, The Immortal Self, really entertaining backstory there. Um, of course, it's a double-edged sword. It's got downsides too, because it's a check. Telomeres are a check on cancer. So the, so the reason we have these telomeres, there are many reasons, but one reason is, canonical reason is Every time the cell divides, a little bit of the telomere gets chopped off. And that eventually gets to a critical limit where the cell says, all right, I've divided too many times. I'm a risk of turning into cancer or it's turning into something else. And they, the cell will either go senescent and stop dividing and just sit there and wait to be cleared by the immune system, or it will apoptose. It will undergo programmed cell death, sort of friendly suicide. Um, and so both of those are not ideal for aging. And so mitigating that would be a good idea, uh, while also preventing retaining that tumor suppressive function of telomeres. Anyway, so um, 
if you, uh, it's Eric Weinstein was actually, he has a cool podcast. One of the people who, mm-hmm. who or, or sorry, Brett Weinstein, his brother, Eric, the physicist worked for Teal also has a good podcast. Um, but anyway, so Brett Weinstein, he's an evolutionary biologist. He pointed out, Hey, um, mouse telomeres are really long. Uh, it's not relevant, at least in the specific strains of mice that they were working with, it's not relevant for humans. Um, and that was kind of swept under the rug in kind of a sketchy way. Um, and it's, it's held back the field. You'd be surprised how often this kind of thing happens, by the way. Anyway, so what can we do about that? Well, like I said, for any biological question, there is always a best suited animal model of disease, or sorry, best suited animal model. Um, so for, you know, simple genetics, molecular biology, yeast are really good. It's really quite easy to work with molecular biology and yeast. Uh, and, and similarly, telomere biology, there are other models that are better to work with. One that was identified by a number of groups that I work with, Miguel Cadinho Ferreira, um, is that zebrafish uh, actually have human length telomeres. Zebrafish have 6 kb telomeres, similar to humans on average. And so you can use them as, as a model for telomere driven accelerated aging because, like with mice, they have 40 kb telomeres. You have to knock out telomerase and then cross them for three or four generations. So you have to get two mice that lack telomerase, cross them, and then their progeny, mm-hmm. you cross them, and then, then you start to see the effects of aging related to short telomeres. So anyway... Um, it takes a point, long time too, right? Isn't it like, yeah, it's, isn't it, it's like three to six generations for humans to have a mutation take hold, and, and more often than not, we'll, we'll die from other things that have mutated. But for mice, I think it's like 300 generations before you can really have like inbreeding issues. So it takes, it takes a, a fair, if I remember correctly, it takes a fair number of generations to get a, a new population with the, um, that trait. I think it's like that's 10, interesting. 15. It, yeah. yeah, it's certainly the case. Yeah. That's an interesting statistic. I haven't heard that one, but, um, it's certainly the case that mice are a lot more robust to consanguineous marriages. It's sometimes said in, you know, inbreeding, uh, I'm, I'm a quarter Icelandic, so I'm no stranger to that. You know, it's, uh, it's very common, but humans are very sensitive to it. I mean, you get two deleterious recessive genes and, you know, it's a rare genetic diseases. Um, so yeah, we're, mice are just more robust in general across the board. So, you know, like mice are rodents are really good at detoxification of xenobiotic molecules, right? So like, when you test a drug for toxicity in rodents, you know, you're, you're actually going to, on a milligram per kilogram basis, going to expect humans to be more sensitive to that toxin because mice, I don't know why this is one theory. Uh, I'm just guessing might be that, you know, rodents are used to digging around in garbage, eating junk. <laughs> you know, I guess humans are eating a lot of junk now too, but it's newer for us. Um, and so they're just used to it or, you know, they're, they're more evolved to do like, there's R selection, K selection, have a huge amount of children early in life. And then, uh, you know, they have to be robust early in life, but then they fall off a cliff later, this kind of thing, which humans don't do quite as much. So um, there are all kinds of reasons for that. But anyway, getting to getting to the original question, what can we do to make it so that mice don't rule the world of biopharma quite as extensively uh, with such an iron fist <laughs> is... Um, you know, there are these organoids, these, you know, human tissues on a chip that that works for toxicology, just seeing if your drug is toxic in human primary cells and sort of pseudo tissues. Um, but toxicology is not really the main problem that we have. Toxicology, we test it in mice, rats, 
dogs, sometimes primates, um, and then, you know, early on in a small subset of humans, toxicology, drugs only fail in clinic, maybe 10 to 20% of the time for toxicology signals. Most of the time they fail for lack of efficacy. The drug just doesn't work in the disease or the indication that you've selected. And so uh, that's really the biggest bottleneck in medicine is more realistic models of disease, you know, more predictive models of, of whether it's going to work in a human human disease. And that's the beauty of aging. It's that aging is pretty strongly conserved genetically across species. And so, and it's not contrived. So, you know, the aging that occurs in that's driving aging in mice is pretty similar to what occurs in humans. It's true that mice mostly die from cancer, like 70, 80% of the time mice die from cancer, whereas 60 plus percent of the time humans die from cardiovascular disease, you know, heart attack, stroke. Um, but, uh, you know, aging itself, even in yeast on a molecular level, biochemical level is actually pretty well conserved. And there's a good paper on this called the hallmarks of aging. Uh, Aubrey's seven deadly sins also break down some of this typology of, uh, of what drives aging. So I'm very optimistic there and we're just getting started, but let me give you one example. Rapamycin. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are probably a couple dozen geroprotective drugs that extend healthy lifespan across species robustly. Um, and one of them, one of the best performing that we've discovered so far is called rapamycin. There are a bunch of interesting analyses and news articles on it, but it, it really does seem to slow the pace of aging. And uh, with limited side effects, although people are working on mitigating those side effects further so that everyone can take it. Um, And this drug, it has label expansion potential. So rapamycin is an FDA approved drug. It's been approved for a long time since the 80s or something or 90s. And it's used for suppressing the immune system in organ transplants. So if you take a high dose of it and it suppresses uh, graft versus host disease, basically, or yeah, um, host versus graft uh, for like kidney transplants. And it's also used in some cancers. It's It's got a bunch of different uses off-label as well. And it seems to work in so many different animal models of disease too, from neurodegenerative diseases to cardiovascular to renal to every pretty much every organ system. Rapamycin seems to be salutary to have benefit. And part of the reason is because it mimics the fasting uh, by enhancing autophagy. So when you do fasting, your cells break down their internal components and rebuild them. It recycles the cell. And that's one reason why fasting is so good for you. There are other reasons too. And rapamycin also does other stuff like it inhibits the rate of translation of producing new proteins. It does a lot of stuff. Anyway, the point is rapamycin is a bona fide geroprotector. It's really the best validated compound we have. Metformin, not that good. Um, It has some side effects and it only extends mouse lifespan about 5% at a maximum when you get the perfect dose. And in humans, it's not clear that it would be beneficial. Um, But rapamycin's pretty large effect size, pretty well validated across uh, the world. And it works in many animal models of disease and it works in multiple human diseases. And there's evidence that it could even work for, for big, unaddressed, unmet medical needs like Alzheimer's disease. My friend Matt Caberlin, also an advisor to Healthspan, is one of the world leaders in the mTOR biology space. mTOR is a mammalian or mechanistic target of rapamycin. It's, it's what rapamycin binds to to mediate its effects. And, you know, he published this great uh, mini review saying, hey, it's time to test rapamycin in Alzheimer's disease because, you know, I strongly agree that uh, it, it's as likely as anything that I've seen to work in Alzheimer's. 
um, and yet it hasn't been done. So it's the kind of thing where if we get rap rapamycin in an Alzheimer's study and it works for Alzheimer's and probably work better than most of what's on, out there available for Alzheimer's today, which don't really work, it would draw so much attention into the longevity field. This is like the first bona fide example of a true geroprotector working for a huge unmet medical need of an age-related disease. And Alzheimer's, people don't fully realize this, but like the global demographic aging crisis, it is a ticking time bomb. We have a rising, you know, age, average age of the population, Alzheimer's rates rising in tandem with that. Uh, and so if we don't do something about it, you know, 10% of GDP, I don't know, 5% of GDP is going to go to just taking care of people with Alzheimer's and all the people who are losing from being productive, living happy, healthy lives because of Alzheimer's disease. So um, anyway, that's sort of my my pitch for somebody out there, test rapamycin in Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> yeah, I think I was recently speaking to someone on this subject and I'm trying to remember their name, but the, so I can cite them accordingly, but they were talking about how they think that uh, for us to get off of animal models outside of chips and the it's other things that we talked about is that uh, organ printing and some elements of cloning is where you're going to see our ability to like really shift off because we'll just basically test right into humans like you know really personalized medicine well eventually personalized medicine because then you can take someone's cell and then tailor stuff but they were they were thinking like you know cloning cloning um people without brains i guess you know so it's not like evil and then because <laughs> well, where can't, do you like, get uh, the age you know, the problem is yeah right. that's that's all well mm -hmm. and good but if if the organ is not already diseased from a lifetime of use and misuse and wear and tear uh, and it's not connected to the rest of the body. I don't know how useful that is. I mean, for specific cases. So I, I know, um, several companies that are doing ex vivo testing of drugs on organs like livers, but those are livers derived from deceased donors that were diseased. So if you can keep it alive for a couple of days and you can test your drug in it, that's cool. Cause it's, you know, the real, the real deal, but, um, yeah, I, I'm really not bullish. So in in any technological field, there, there are hype cycles and people get really excited about certain things. People are really excited about CRISPR, even though CRISPR is like not that great. I mean, it's cool as a research tool. It was a breakthrough at the time, but now there are all kinds of better versions that we can use. So, um, so there's this like excessive hype cycle. And I think the organoids, organs on a chip, all of this will be fine for, for toxicology studies. I'm 100% there. Yeah. But in terms of measuring efficacy of a disease, um, it's going to be a lot harder also because the systems are interconnected. So you would, I mean, if you could get a brainless clone and then age it for X years and it would recapitulate human disease or aging, cool. But, you know, it, looking at my clock, it's going to be 50, 60, 70 years before, even if that were technologically feasible today, that we'd be able to use it. Um, but I'm all for people trying crazy stuff. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I encourage everyone to come up with any kind of crazy idea, but yeah, I, I think there's lower hanging fruit at the moment. Yeah. I, I wonder if there's like a, a, like a reverse Yamanaka factor that you could use to age up cells artificially so you could get to a certain age and then test it accordingly. Yeah, uh, there are. Cause it, oh, there are really? Yeah. Are well, they? there are progeria genes. There are all kinds hmm. of models of accelerating aging, you know, toxin based or genetic uh, you could even send stuff up into space. That's not very convenient, but space causes accelerated aging like phenotype. But we know a whole lot of genes, these accelerated aging diseases called progerias that you can knock into cells and, and they do look older, but 
again, it's it's not wild type human aging. It's not quite the same. So aging mm-hmm. is a very elusive thing. Like we can, you know it when you see it. Um, I think that it was said about pornography too. Like there was a Supreme Court case uh, in the early 20th century and they're like, well, we don't have a definition for it, but you know it when you see it. And so aging is quite similar. It's 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 not really defined by any individual characteristic or hallmark of aging, you know, DNA damage load or proteostasis failure or epigenetic drift or whatever, but it's kind of the combination of all of them. And those are all proxies of some central, you know, hidden variable. So so yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, people don't really have a good model for aging other than the real deal. And, you know, fortunately we can pre-age mice and have them on tap uh, whenever we need them. And eventually, you know, when 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 the long biofield supplants the traditional pharmaceutical industry, we could have pre-aged colonies of primates like marmosets or, you know, whatever. Um, and then we could test these therapies on them, you know, on demand. Uh, and that could could be the biggest breakthrough of all time. So I have a friend who, um, with his own money, created a, a primate facility in Southeast Asia. And he's, you know, testing some of these geroprotective interventions on them. But you know, it's not the kind of thing it's easy to raise capital for. But yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I saw a documentary on that guy. I, the first uh, part was called Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <That's terrible. laughs> yeah exactly yeah he's breeding them to be super intelligent yeah exactly it's gonna be great yeah, the aerosol the the new trilogy yeah. is actually really, really good i don't know if you've seen it but no. uh if you it doesn't have the it's not in terms of style it's not like um his Arcus guy of the galaxy but it's very well done i i uh, if you're into like something that'll make you feel for monkeys like by the end of it you'll you'll feel for caesar which is kind of cool that any circus mm-hmm. can evoke that for you know something that doesn't really exist um Cool. I wanted to ask you to like circling back to one of the first things we talked about. I forgot water. Uh, you talked about how there are organizations in biotech that are just like a couple of people working on it, and then they they contract out to CROs. And I think Oki Connor was talking about how he's doing similar things. Like there's certain things they do in house, but there's a lot that they do out of house. It's a normal thing that let people do. But you were talking about earlier how there's some organizations that are just like completely contracted out. And someone as an investor, I'm curious. I. The investors I know, they usually really like IP and like a lot of stuff done as much as they can in-house because then there's more stuff that is valuable. So then how does that work with yeah. a group that's basically all IP and two people and then the rest, like everyone else is building it? Yeah. So um, you when you contract out the R&D, you own the intellectual property, the results, whether you yeah. contract it out to universities or to CROs. So it's, that's not a big deal, but there are, there is tacit knowledge. There are like implicit, hard to explain mm-hmm. in a written document expertise, uh, you know, how to culture cells in a certain way or whatever, that it's good to have in-house and good to have people who really invested in the project. I mean, there are all kinds of merits to having your own lab, but it's sometimes not ideal for a company just getting started who's bootstrapping and doing the key killer experiments and so on. Um, Oki uh, is, is a rock star, big fan of him uh, and Cyclarity, the entire Cyclarity team. We're actually, we've known them for a long time and, and we're going to be speaking to them next week because they're raising some capital now. So we may invest. They have a very cool uh, platform for uh, developing these uh, supra molecular structures called um, cyclodextrins mm-hmm. that um, basically chelate uh, oxidized cholesterol and other molecules out of your vasculature or out of whatever tissue. And so uh, that's a really cool approach of sort of directly targeting the the damage that may be causing cardiovascular disease. 
I'm actually a little bearish on the cholesterol hypothesis of atherosclerosis. I think it's important for some subset of the population, but it's not the primary driver for many others. Um, anyway, so yeah, you can operate these companies as virtual. Wait, actually, yeah, if ahead. I could interject real quick, because uh, I want to ask you a question about isoclarity. clarity. The, if, if you're bullish on the uh, cholesterol aspect of it, what do you think about their research, the grant that they got to study the relationship with the, the brain and the heart and cholesterol? Because the, uh, the gene that people get for Alzheimer's is basically cholesterol regulation that they're working on. Are, is that interesting? Yeah, what do you think about that? And then yeah. we can continue on with the question. Yeah, that, that's probably APOE, um, APOE 4-4. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's it's a um, proteolipid. It's It traffics lipids, but it doesn't necessarily govern cholesterol metabolism. I mean, there are a lot of hypotheses about everything that APOE does. It also governs inflammation, neuroinflammation, covers, governs energy metabolism, governs the trafficking of omega-3 fatty acids like DHA and EPA into the brain. Uh, so it, it's not an open and shut case that, that uh -huh. cholesterol is why. And it's also not clear that removing cholesterol, even oxidized cholesterol, will solve the problem of athero. I mean, there are all kinds of other theories about why do we get calcium buildup? Uh, why do we get these lesions? in certain parts of the vasculature where the cholesterol and the foam cells accumulate. Um, you know, it's the world seems to think that cholesterol equals atherosclerosis. I mean, that view is kind of coming out of fashion. That was really driven by an excellent pharmaceutical drug marketing campaign, uh, primarily by Pfizer to sell Lipitor, which at the time is a best-selling drug of all time. It sold $120 billion in total revenue. Um, and uh, this is the statin class of drugs. And statins, they only lower your cardiovascular disease risk by a little bit, and they don't improve your um, all-cause mortality. You're more likely to get diabetes and all kinds of other problems from the statin. So um, so they really did, their marketing was too good. It did a disservice to the entire world. Because when you talk to a lot of pharma groups now, if they're not in the atherosclerosis, they say, oh, atherosclerosis, isn't that like kind of a solved problem? Statins are so good. They, mm. you know, they're, they've solved the problem. Absolutely not. In fact, some of the benefit of the statins may just be to their general anti-inflammatory properties, and some even induce autophagy mildly, then reducing the synthesis of cholesterol. So anyway, it's it's a very vibrant debate. I won't mm. get into that. But anyway, so, um, but one thing is for sure, which is that the immune system is critical to atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, chronic inflammation, what we call inflammaging. I think it was Claudio Franceschi who came up with this term. Um, and that's why we launched this company, ImmuneAge Bio, formerly ImmuneAge Pharma. Um, and we're targeting the rejuvenation of the hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow. So in your mm -hmm. bone marrow, you have this very precious, highly pro proliferative stem cell type called HSC, hematopoietic stem cell. And they give rise to all of your red blood cells, you know, hundreds of billions of cells a day. Uh, and all of your white blood cells too, your immune system. And the HSCs and the related cells, the mesenchymal stem cells, MSCs in the bone marrow and elsewhere, they have these general purpose regenerative properties too. So you can actually inject MSCs or HSCs peripherally and they will home to sites of injury and inflammation and actually help with the repair process. So anyway, so we basically set up a platform to find molecules that rejuvenate HSCs that can be applied to other cell types, ex vivo too, T cells, the NK cells, macrophages, MSCs for sure. 
Um, and so, you know, we have this capability of achieving 1000 fold expansion of these cells. Some of this work was done at Stanford. Now the PI is at Oxford and, uh, some groups that we know are continuing to elaborate on it. Um, and so for the first time ever, we were able to get a thousand fold, the number of these actually 2000 fold in under a month of these HSCs, uh, maintaining their stem like properties. So, you know, HSCs are primarily known for the role in bone marrow transplants. When a patient, you know, has leukemia or has severe autoimmune disease or, or many other diseases, they need a bone marrow transplant from either themselves uh, or from a healthy donor. Um, and so, you know, this technology to expand the HSC availability is itself, I think, going to be a huge breakthrough in the bone marrow transplant field and open the availability of bone marrow transplants to many people who wouldn't otherwise be eligible for it, maybe because they're too old, they can't get enough functional HSCs from themselves autologously, or they can't find a matched donor. Um, so it'll increase the supply of these immunologically matched donors out there in the world. But we're actually going a step further. So in addition to improving the hmm. expansion capability for HSCs and MSCs and other cell types, works for T cells too. Um, we're using this platform, which we call stem supply, um, that was published in nature. Two papers in nature came out uh, in the last couple of years on it from our collaborator. Um, we're using that stem supply platform to get our hands on a large supply of aged human primary HSCs that allow us to do high throughput combinatorial drug screening. And so now we can find these cocktails of reagents that rejuvenate the HSC. So we ex we expand them, rejuvenate them, and then reinfuse them into the patient. And you can actually reinfuse in the bloodstream. And the amazing thing about HSCs is they know where to go. They home into the bone marrow and, and take up residence. Uh, and this has been done for over you know 50 years or longer with bone marrow transplants routinely. And HSCs are one of the only stem cell types that actually stick around in the body. When you inject MSCs therapeutically, there's a benefit because they secrete beneficial stuff. Uh, anti-inflammatory factors, pro-regenerative factors, but then they disappear, they apoptose, but not HSCs. HSCs stick around for pretty much the whole rest of your life, if you're lucky. So, so anyway, that's a bit about um, what we're working on immune age. And one of the reasons I'm really keen on this is because if you do young to old heterochronic bone marrow transplant, you take young mice transplant into an old mouse, the bone marrow, the old mouse lives significantly longer, somewhere between 12 and 30%. And those aren't optimized protocols, which is a large effect size. And with no negative side effects either. Uh, even rapamycin, hmm. our favorite geroprotective molecule, has side effects, but thus far, this HSC transplant doesn't in the mice at least. Um, and so, uh, and it can work for many different age-related diseases. So, like cardiovascular disease, for example, one of the genes, the human genes that is most predictive of cardiovascular outcomes, is actually a gene that governs hematopoiesis. Uh, so you wouldn't expect it, but it's probably something to do with how, you know, the um, immune system is governing inflammation and chronic low-grade inflammation is a major driver of cardiovascular disease, disease and most other diseases. So anyway, that's a bit of a pitch of what we're up to. I'm happy to elaborate on the clinical yeah, applications to, and so on. Yeah, I'd love to dive into that. I know we were like we were going off to talk about IP asset and how that's uh, valuable, but I, I imagine people, even the listeners are probably going to find this more interesting. That's more like a... Uh, so. So as a quick aside, anyone who who's out there who's like someone's pressuring you to do a bone marrow transplant, if you go to the screening 
or you message the screening people that you're being pressured, they will send a false negative. So they leave you alone just as a heads up in case you know, out there's being pressured to, you know, give bone marrow transplant. You can literally get out of it pretty easily. Now that's, you know, up to you if that's a thing you want to do. But so it sounds like to summarize the immune age has a, a couple of uh, aspects to, to the, what's special about it. You have the, the, the stem supply is one aspect, the computational platform is one aspect. And then it sounds like the way you, uh, you intervene to the system is another aspect that makes it all together uh, special or was just a, a clarifying statement was the stem supply something that you're getting from another group or is that all within your uh, house of IP? Yeah, so we're we're doing a lot of it in house. There are earlier versions that were pioneered by academics as is often the case, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. but we and others are already improving on, on those prototypes. Uh, it's kind of amazing because it seems pretty obvious that rejuvenating the immune system is going to be a good idea. I mean, think about COVID, for example, the, the number one predictor of mortality from COVID is biological age and immune function, right? And it's the case with every infectious disease. It's also the case with cancer. The main reason why you and I hopefully don't have cancer right now is because our immune system is constantly surveilling for these nascent tumors that are always cropping up. Uh, and when the immune system goes senescent, then, you know, they're allowed to proliferate. So, so it seems obvious. And to your point, you know, you might have people, you know, pressuring you to, to donate some bone marrow because they're desperate because it's a life and death matter. Right. And something that I learned that really struck me is 50% of people who need a bone marrow transplant, who are waiting on the wait list to find a genetically matched, immunologically matched HLA type donor actually die, they pass away waiting for mm -hmm. a donor to be found, which doesn't make that much sense because, you know, everybody is a special snowflake, but we're actually genetically fairly similar. If you can find, you know, your ethnic group combination and so on, you can usually find a pretty reasonable match. Um, but it's just that the systems we have in place for finding bone marrow donors are not that great. And you also can't pay somebody. You cannot, in America, you cannot pay someone to donate an organ or tissue to you. Um, you know, the black market rate for kidneys, I don't know what it is, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, but, you know, if it's if it's a matter of someone's life, like for me, if I needed a bone marrow transplant, couldn't find a donor, I was likely going to die. Would I spend, you know, my life savings on on saving my life, you know, would my family pool the money? Yeah. I mean, we already do it today with drugs that don't really work that well. Like a lot of these cancer drugs, you know, chemotherapies, you might get six months of extended healthy lifespan or not even healthy lifespan, extended lifespan undergoing chemo symptoms. And people pay hundreds of thousands for that. And insurance pays hundreds of thousands. So we should, we should really have some way, you know, the market Things can go wrong with markets, but usually that's because of government intervention, honestly. Um, markets are a very powerful thing. It's just to allow people to voluntarily transact and then make it illegal and create a black market for something like this doesn't make sense. You know, it's like creating a black market for recreational drugs or even for pharmaceutical drugs. You know, you're not allowed to get certain drugs in certain countries. People bootleg it um, or prostitution or any kind of service or good that people really have demand for when you try to make it illegal. Uh, you know, it just, it just makes the whole thing worse, makes the whole system worse. And so the same with bone marrow transplants, like I, I can understand kidneys, right? Anyone only has one kidney to give. Um, but with bone marrow, you can replenish 
bone marrow when you've donated, not infinitely, but you can replenish it. Um, and furthermore, with th these new methods like stem supply, um, we can uh, dramatically expand the supply of donors. So for example, let's say it would be a one-to-one -one, uh, donor proportion. You find one genetically matched donor, they can donate to one other person, okay? But what if you could take the bone marrow from that donor and expand it by a hundredfold, a thousandfold? Mm. You have a hundred doses for a hundred people, right? And so then you can just bank that and suddenly you have you know, um, a supply of genetically diverse bone marrow to donate. And then you can go a step further, which is you could try to genetically engineer some of these HLA types so that you can create a whole new panel of genetically diverse cells based on initial donor cells, maybe from a young, healthy patient, young, healthy donor. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just mind boggling because I, I've met several people who, you know, they or their loved ones need bone marrow transplants or they have blood cancer. And it's like a logistical nightmare to find a donor and it shouldn't be. Um, and hopefully these new technologies can remedy that. We're not primarily focused on that logistical problem. We would love with sufficient investor capital to expand into that area. There's some other companies that I think are well positioned to do that. Um, but, you know, it's a small field relative to the importance and the huge unmet medical needs. So, you know, there's a room for a lot of different players in this space, I think. And um, it's no longer a scientific technical question. It's not like, can we do it? Can we expand the cells? Can we bank the cells? Can we phenotype them? No, like all of the scientific technical pieces are in place. It's just a logistical and regulatory challenge to build up such a, a biobank, but it's being done for other tissues. So anyway, that's something that I'd really like to, to encourage in the future if we carry it forward or other groups in the space. Our primary focus is actually um, these uh, stem cell rejuvenating cocktails. So these cocktails of molecules uh, that can be exposed to the cells ex vivo outside of the body in a petri dish and then rejuvenated on the co course of a couple hours a couple days and then reinfused in the patient so imagine you have a refreshed rejuvenated immune system with your own hsc so the long-term vision here is what we call um what is it project theseus after the ship of theseus which is this ancient greek myth you're you're smart guy you seem to recognize what yeah, i'm talking about I, here i know what it is yeah where you slowly replace uh, one piece of wood in the Greek ship. Uh, and when do you declare that you have a new ship? Well, it's similar with the, with a bone marrow where you mobilize, it's an outpatient procedure. You come in, you can mobilize with, uh, an injection or a set of pills, mobilize some HSCs in the peripheral blood that's routinely done today in bone marrow transplants. Um, and quite safe. You put them in a dish, rejuvenate, expand, and then reinfuse. And you have just refreshed your supply of um, HSCs, of young rejuvenated functional HSCs. Uh, alternatively, you know, if for whatever reason mobilization in the peripheral blood is doesn't work or is inconvenient, you can also do a 15-minute outpatient procedure, which is a fine needle aspiration into the hip bone, where you take out about five milliliters of bone marrow. And that's under local anesthesia and it's you know pretty quick and and that might have some advantages too because you also get mesenchymal stem cells with it and some other stromal type cells which could be beneficial so so anyway technologically the pieces are in place it's in clinical practice what we hope to have are these cocktails that will be 
available to hospitals, academic research centers, other companies to just slot very neatly into the existing clinical protocol. And we we deliver it kind of like the picks and shovels approach, this enabling technology for many other groups. Um, and then furthermore, some of the molecules that we find, and we already found one that does this, which is our lead program, it's called IA101, that program, um, it rejuvenates HSCs ex vivo, but it also rejuvenates immune system in vivo when you take the drug orally. It's safe to take mm. orally. It's got pretty good pharmacokinetics. It's not that bioavailable, but we're working on it. And uh, it rejuvenates immune function better than anything that my team of immunologists has ever seen, uh, which is nice. And then we went through the literature and we, uh, my uh, head of immunology uh, went through the literature and found all the molecules out there that have been published the rejuvenate HSE function immune system broadly. We've got over a hundred in that list and we can make a cocktail and we can combine them sort of combinatorial approach for these cocktails as, you know, mixologists or bartenders that we've become to rejuvenate these cells. So, um, so some of them will be ex vivo use, like a way for bone marrow transplant or other cell therapy companies to, to apply that to their technique technologies. And secondly, we already found one, but hopefully we'll find more molecules that are suitable to take in vivo, take a pill, and that can rejuvenate immune function more conveniently. Um, and, you know, maybe prevent cold and flu. That would be the holy grail. It's the fourth leading cause of death is upper respiratory tract infections, uh, preventing that, preventing chronic or dealing with chronic infections, et cetera. And then last note that I'll end on before you, you jump in is, uh, I know I talk too much. Um, you can cure a HIV infection with a bone marrow transplant. This mm -hmm. has been done several times. If your donor has certain genetic mutations that make the helper T cells or other immune cells invisible to HIV virus, one of them is called CCR5. This is the gene that the gentleman, the, the scientist in China used CRISPR on those babies uh, for. He was promptly, he was celebrated at first by the Chinese communist government. And then he was promptly thrown in prison afterward uh, because it wasn't ethically, you know, acceptable to CRISPR engineer these babies. But that gene variant of it actually protects you against HIV. So there are cases of people who've been cured of chronic HIV, HIV infection with bone marrow transplant. And again, the technical technical pieces are in place. Mobilize that person's HSCs. Now we can expand them enough to actually replace the bone marrow or just supplement with these HIV resistant ones and we can CRISPR in the, the mutation. So, you know, hopefully some, someone's working on this. I haven't heard much about it, but that's mm -hmm. kind of the amazing thing is that just because there are all these good ideas in biotech doesn't mean it's being done. And if it is being done, it may be being done by like one or two small groups. It's not, pharma is not doing really hardcore innovation. Generally speaking, they're very slow and they kind of pick the low hanging fruit from what biotech companies have already advanced into the clinics. So there's hope. If you want to be a biotech founder, you got a cool idea. Don't assume that someone is already doing it just because it seems like an obvious idea. Um, it's, it's definitely worth, worth the shot. Yeah. Uh, just to add on the last comment as well, the, um, even if someone else is doing it, it doesn't mean they're doing it how you're going to do it. If you yeah. assemble the right team, you can blow someone out of the water. I was talking to someone, I was talking to someone either today or, or yesterday where they were talking about how they were really stressed out about a competitor getting like 10 times as much money as them. And I was like, well, they're going to prove out a model that's different than yours. Just, just, you know, get to the, get out in their newsletter, <laughs> pay attention to what they're doing, but just focus on what you're doing. And, you know, do you believe they, their, their methodology that they're going to go forward with is, is better than yours? Like, no, then what's, what's 10 times more money going to do for them? 
right? They're going to pay all those workers to learn how to do that stuff. And then when they go out of business, you can hire them and you can get all that knowledge. They basically are going to pay them to learn that way. Like whenever I see a, a competitor who gets more money, I just think, oh, great. They're going to prove out the model in a different way than what I intended to do. So I think having like not a scarcity mindset in terms of like competition is a, a healthy thing as well. Um, for for what you're building, it I don't know if you've ever seen this movie called uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Buyers Club. Where, mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. I was just talking yeah, to my really friend good. Lawrence Ion about that today. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, for anyone uh, who's unfamiliar, it's basically uh, Matthew McConaughey is someone who got HIV and the U.S. government was like, you can't have these certain drugs that would keep them alive and ha- happy and healthy. So he started going to Mexico and basically drug, drug running them back. And he had a subscription model so people could get it around the FDA and stuff. But then the FDA got mad at him saying you couldn't do that. And it's like, well, it works. So how you shut up? But then they allowed a special exemption for man. I'm spoiling the movie. It's a good movie. Go watch it. Um, <laughs> For for the intervention, after you take the cells, you make them healthy, you put them back in. Um, is how long does it take before it populates to all the bone marrow? Can you just do like a, like a one one spot and it like slowly gets everywhere, or or do you have to like do a lot of work to get it to propagate and then make? I don't know how bone marrow works normally, but like how much bone marrow do you actually have to take out and then put back in to to effectively? Um, either rejuvenate or correct for someone who needs a bone marrow transplant is it yeah Yeah, it's it's you know the amazing thing about hsds is they can proliferate massively so there Mm -hmm. are cases where people are only left you know an old age 80 or something with one or two different clones different you know genetic variants of hscs in their bone marrow uh they've overpopulated or outcompeted all the other diverse genetic clones in their bone marrow that they started with so actually um, you know, there are these limited dilution assays. You can see how potent a given HSC is uh, in repopulating the entire bone marrow. Um, so obviously more, the more you can infuse, the better. And that's why this stem supply approach is so attractive, uh, all else being equal. Um, and so, you know, when you infuse in the bloodstream, they home into the bone marrow. You know, you've got them in your um, the bones in your legs and your hips and sometimes in your ribs, sometimes even in your skull. Um, so, you know, the bone marrow is everywhere and, and it, it's kind of, in, it's kind of telling that the bone marrow is inside of your bones, because if evolution were to ask where, where would be the place that would put the most precious cells for safekeeping, you know, it's like under the mm-hmm. mattress or in a safe or in a vault, what's the safest place in the body? It's, inside of the tubes inside of your bones it's the most protected place you can get uh humans only have you know something like ten thousand to thirty thousand hscs um and so you know that's nothing we have trillions and trillions of cells something like that i don't even know if we know exactly how many cells we have but we have a lot so they're very rare very precious very proliferative i'd say other than embryonic stem cells they're the most um potent powerful Mm. type of stem cell that i'm aware of so the ability for us to increase our supply of them is, is a pretty big deal. I mean, I've been in this field for 10 years as a venture investor, as a company founder, multiple companies, Samsara Therapeutics, which is today one of the leading, if not the leading autophagy enhancement drug discovery companies in Oxford, Cambrian Biopharma, which is one of the, certainly one of the leading longevity biotech companies out there, multi-asset companies, very large enterprise, Um, you know, Apollo Health Ventures, which I was one of the earliest employees of, uh, you know, the largest aging focused fund. Like I've seen a lot in this field as much as most people can see. I mean, there are professors who've been working on aging for many decades who know a lot more about the biology of aging than me, but 
But as far as the industry goes, I've seen a lot of what's out there. And, uh, you know, it, it strikes me, it struck me as insane that, you know, this has not been done before and, and it's technologically right to do it. Uh, and it was the same with autophagy too, you know, before autophagy became cool and fashionable. Um, and so, you know, I, I could have started many different kinds of companies. Uh, I was not in a rush to launch a company. It takes a lot of energy, but this is an opportunity that I could not pass up because it was such the potential impact for medicine is so profound in aging and in bone marrow transplant and in immune system rejuvenation. Like all of the pieces fit into place. All of the boxes are checked. Also from a regulatory perspective, you know, we're reju rejuvenating these cells ex vivo outside the body. So it's way safer than a drug that you would take in vivo uh, that could have off-target effects, you know, it could be toxic to your liver or it could do this or that. We don't know, but we know what we're doing to the cells before we put them in the patient, right? And so there are so many advantages to this approach, but um, I'm biased, but I'm not even, I don't even have that much training in immunology. I just play an immunologist on TV, uh, but I have a hardcore team of immunologists who are, who are really driving a lot of the science forward. So, so yeah, um, I, I love this approach. And yeah, you, you mentioned Aubrey de Grey. He's, he's testing a couple, three different interventions in lifespan studies right now. He tweeted this recently. One of them is young to old bone marrow transplant, you know? So that's a testament to that it's underappreciated with, with high leverage, high potential impact. No, I, the approach sounds really smart to me as well. Um, often people underappreciate how powerful our immune systems are because they, like, they take for granted, like, oh, I got a cold. I was sick for a couple of days. Your immune system is like constantly Normandy Beach getting just bombarded with stuff every day. And it gets worse. It degrades over time like we've been talking about. So this idea that there could be someone going through a health crisis at 60 and be rejuvenated to have an immune system of 20, I, 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 can't, I can't imagine... Um, I can I can imagine how powerful that combination of approaches would be where you could rejuvenate the system that just makes everything, you know, like kind of like gets everything run accordingly. And if they have some other thing going on at the same time, I imagine that outside of uh, bone marrow transplants and any disease related to that, there might be some other like downstream effects where just having it rejuvenated and having this process in place might make other illness treatments that much more effective because the immune system is actually capable of uh doing more because it's you know it's the young you know sprinter you know uh, athletic person versus maybe an older person who's maybe you know not as uh capable as a 20 year old i think that's fair to say uh so i love the approach the, so when you take it out of the, the body i have uh uh there's a, a friend i this is a general idea i've had where like people who do blood either platelets where they uh extract platelets for donation or, or blood for donation that what if they just had like an extra form where they said like hey you know sign this thing it's gonna be like a portion of your blood's gonna be sent uh for research and uh, if you want, you can like, keep track of it. Is there any uh, potential to keep uh, some segment of the HSCs because you can make them proliferate so fast where you can start building like an HSC uh, bio, like biobank and then doing computational biology on that sample of data to, to learn something from it? Or is that like not useful from a business standpoint or not useful? I don't know, like it sounds like a very potent thing that you have if you can proliferate so much and get like a, a percentage of it and then do research off of it, like it might be a useful thing or not. Yeah, you tell me. Absolutely. So um, it, it would be, but the challenge is um, you have to get your hands on these precious rare cells, these HSCs. Um, mm -hmm. And there are always a small number of HSCs in the bloodstream, but in order to get enough, um, 
at least for prior methods, we may be able to expand them without mobilization. We may be able to get enough, like for an apheresis, uh, and just and just pull out the CD34 positive cells in circulation. We may not need to do mobilization, but generally speaking, you have to take a pill or take an injection of a certain agent that mobilizes some of these HSCs in your peripheral blood. So you'd have to do that to people who are donating plasma. Um, it, it may be, I mean, if you offer to compensate them for, you know, if they get a headache or they feel tired or, or whatever, oh, uh, you'd, you'd have to compensate them for that. But I think it would make sense to do. I think governments should immediately um, allow people to be paid to donate uh, some of their or compensated for for providing some of their blood, uh, especially now that it becomes viable where you don't need a whole bone marrow extraction. So the bone marrow transplant that that people used to do a lot is you'd have to, as a donor, go under general anesthesia. You'd have to like drill into one of your large bones and really pull out a lot, like, I don't know, 100 milliliters of bone marrow for a bone marrow transplant. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it's it's still it's still done in some instances, but a lot of the time you can actually just do peripheral mobilized blood. Sometimes you can do cord blood, although cord blood is actually kind of dangerous because cord blood is not a perfect immunological match to you. It's partially your mm -hmm. mother as well as you, so it's not self. It's not immunologically self completely, um, but it's young, which is an advantage. So um, if you have children, definitely store their their umbilical cord because the MSCs in there, mesenchymal stem cells in there, will have applications for many different uh, diseases in the future, and the HSCs as well. So it's a good idea for everybody to preserve core blood of their kids. You can also voluntarily bank your own uh, bone marrow. There are some companies that offer this service. Um, I'm thinking of doing it at some point, uh, sometime soon, uh, where you know you're never going to be. You're, we're not getting any younger, right? So to the extent that you can mobilize and, and store some of your own HSCs now it's it's sort of like a, a similar version to rejuvenating them in the future so so yeah um those are some of the logistical challenges we're not really that well suited to do this kind of logistical clinical collection space thing if someone wanted to do a joint venture with us we'd certainly put in capital and put in expertise um we're currently focused on just what's my core area of expertise which is drug discovery yeah. particularly early stage drug discovery and so you know we've already found some pretty compelling molecules and we're just getting started so um you know on this platform we can look at metabolism of immune cells or other cells ex vivo so we look at mitochondrial function mitochondrial mass membrane potential mitophagy mitochondrial biogenesis uh sort of seahorse type assay assays on metabolism we can do those at high throughput actually through flow cytometry um and we also look at stemness so you know and symmetry of division and all kinds of other factors related to stem cell identity uh we look at epigenetic age so the methylation clocks you've heard of these horvath type clocks mm -hmm. look at that we do single cell sequencing we do functional assays like colony forming units and all kinds of um you know myeloid lymphoid skewing so and we're just getting started with these assays so we can set up a whole long sequence of assays to characterize the hallmarks of HSC aging. It hasn't been done yet in a systematic way. I mean, there are a lot of great academic groups who've pioneered a lot of this work, but yeah, no industry efforts to characterize HSC aging, expand, you know, the bioprocessing to expand them on an industrial scale, um, you know, and rejuvenation cocktails. Is there anyone on your team either at Immune IA or at HealthSpan that you are looking for out there? Maybe someone listening would know someone 
or are you set for the people you need in terms of talent to execute your vision? Yeah, I mean, we're always keen to meet talented new people, uh, even if you're not a scientist, you know, operational background, uh, BD, this kind of thing. Um, obviously, investors always happy to talk to investors. You can never have too many. Um, industry partners, academic partners, uh, anyone can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, right now, we uh, are hiring a couple of roles, but we have a lot of good candidates in the pipeline. We're very fortunate because even though we're early stage, we got really good talent who wants to work with us. Um, and yeah, so, so I would say, you know, if you are interested in collaborating in some way, feel free to drop me a line, send me a message on LinkedIn. Sweet. And then if they wanted to get updates, I, I don't, uh, what would be the best place to get that? Do you have a newsletter or something that people can point to and then just get one spot or like a Twitter or something where like, people can follow you? Um, yes. Twitter, um, Sebastian underscore Gero, G-E-R-O. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not super active on there, but I do post stuff that I think uh, is, is worth. Um, we're a little bit in stealth mode with Immunage, so we're not like publicizing that much. Uh, HealthSpan, we have uh, an investor uh, LP letter that we send, um, a state of the art in the field of long bio and what's going on in our portfolio. Um, at some point, we, we can make that a little bit more public. My colleague, Nathan Chang, uh, runs longevitylist.com. That's a great resource. It's all the job postings, companies, investors, uh, clinical trials in the long bio field. Really check out that site, longevitylist.com. And he also has a newsletter, Longevity Market Cap Newsletter, that is really useful for keeping on top of the field. Um, there's also one called Spanner, S-P-A-N-N-R. I'd say it's a little broader than just longevity. Uh, but but that's a good one to subscribe to as well. But there will be many of these. VitaDAO also puts out a monthly report on new developments in the long bio field. So yeah, there are a lot of resources out there and feel free to send me a message if you want intros to any of those groups. Sweet. And then the last question I have is, I'm always looking for books. You've already referenced a bunch throughout, so that's fun. Are there any books in particular that you'd recommend people check out that, that you're currently reading? As a, as a last question, yeah. encourage people to read a book. I'll read anything you sure. suggest, um, by the way. Okay, cool. Well, you know, I actually have I have this um, Google Drive folder that contains dozens, maybe up to 100 PDF books in the field of biotech, history of drug discovery, longevity biotech, a lot of papers and publications in there, um, guides on biotech founding and drug discovery. So I'm happy to share that, share, can share that with your listeners. Um, books that I'm reading right now, um, are books that I would cite, uh, for the general audience. Um, there, there are two that, that I'm kind of interested in. I'm kind of in like a, a sovereignty individual libertarian kick now. So there's a book that came out a while ago called the sovereign individual. It was written, um, by Rees Mogg. I can't remember his name. Anyway, it was the forwards from Peter Thiel and it's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, prophecy about how technology is going to change politics or what they call mega politics. Um, but if you actually, I would, I would recommend before you read that reading the network state by Balaji Srinivasan. If you've heard of this book, this is kind of a revolutionary treatise on how we can create new forms of social organization separate from the established nation states and states that are monopolies on violence uh, enabled by crypto, enabled by Web3 and just communities online coming together. We're going to be doing this pop-up um, 
network state in Montenegro um, near Tivat uh, in the coming two months. So Vitalik is sponsoring it and Balaji will be there and a bunch of longevity people and crypto people and so on, uh, synthetic biology people. So that will be a cool event. An example, there's a place called Prospera doing a bit of this as well. Stranded Technologies podcast is, is also a good one. And then I would recommend um, uh, Michael Gibson's book uh, from 1517 Fund, which is, I always forget the name, Paper Bell on Fire. And it was actually, mm -hmm. uh, the term was coined by Balaji Srinivasan, who's a very original thinker. And uh, it's basically a re revolt against the established institutions, you know, that that print things on paper. So, you know, back east, yeah, like Boston, that prints degrees on paper, Wall Street, that prints securities and debts on paper. Washington that prints laws on paper uh, in favor of sort of a more free uh, technological uh, system. And it also is sort of a clarion call. It's sort of this, this um, note of encouragement to young people um, because throughout history, young people have innovated a lot. And now we're, you know, young people, I say we are not that young anymore, but young people are hamstrung by the existing institutions keeping them stuck in academia, you know, drilling, you know, like beating the pleasure of learning out of them young uh, and in sort of focusing them on some being some cog in, in the machine. Uh, you know, the, the modern education system is built on the Prussian military system. Um, the Prussian military came up with these bell schedules and these forward facing desks and these teachers lecturing you. Uh, it, it's based on, you know, creating soldiers. And in the early 20th century, Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, others wanted to create a kind of school system that was good for creating obedient, uh, docile workers, <laughs> you know? So, you know, mm -hmm. the current school system is not really ideally suited for creating original thinkers and people willing to do something new, people who really love learning. I think it was uh, Rick and Morty. It was Morty <laughs> who said, or no, it was Rick, the, the father, who said, you know, you know, Morty, school is not a good place for smart people. <laughs> school is not a good place for smart people. So that uh, kind of stuck with me. But um, anyway, so I would check out those books. Um, so many I could recommend. Depends what you're interested in, of course. But yeah, I would check out The Network State and Paper Belt on Fire. That's kind of the, the kick that I'm in outside of the biotech space. I'm always reading about biotech stuff. But for the general audience, I think those are really important books from this last year or two. Sweet. And when I read them, if I think of anything that would be good for you, I'll, re I'll recommend them back to you. I just want to say uh, thank, you, thank you, everybody, for for tuning in, for being a part of the show, for listening to Sebastian, for listening to all these different things that he's up to. You know, you, all the links that we talked about will be in the show notes. So just, you know, send them a message if you're in the field or if you're going to one of these conferences, maybe you guys can hang up and gra grab a, a a drink. And then what you have. Oh, go ahead. One more thing I forgot to plug is the Longevity Biotech Fellowship, Long Bio Fellowship, yeah. LBF. This is organized by my colleague Nathan Chang and others. And it basically is sort of uh, a group of um, people who want to get into the long bio field or they're already in the field and they want some sort of you know cohesion. Uh, it's a group of, I don't know, 100 people per cohort every quarter or half a year or something. And you know they organize talks from leaders in the field, um, workshops on how to launch companies, how to join cool companies in the space, uh, you know, some leading professors and, and everybody uh, in the long bio field is, is involved with this fellowship and it's quite new. So it's been growing quite rapidly. So if you're interested in transitioning from whatever it is you're currently doing into the long bio field, 
you know, we have a missionary zeal and everybody is welcome. And so, you know, like I said, we're, we're literally trying to save our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. I mean, there's, there's a guarantee, you know, that we're marching toward the grave and unless we do something about it. And thankfully medicine has been over the last century has made some pretty good advancements, like with antibiotics and sanitation and so on. But over the last 30 or 40 years, the pace of progress is really slowed uh, by my estimation. And so um, it would be great to have fresh new approaches. And I think the most promising approach to improving medicine is targeting the root cause of these diseases in the first place, which is biological aging for the most part. So everybody check out Longevity Biotech Fellowship, LBF, and uh, apply. And yeah, we'd love more people to get involved. And if you want to learn, hear more, Mark was uh, co-founder of Nathan, was on the show uh, earlier this year, so you can check out that episode as well. But Sebastian, I just want to thank you for coming on the show, for spending so much of your time talking with us. And uh, yeah, just a huge thank you for being on the show. Yeah, happy to be here. Keep up the good work. I've I've appreciated the guests you've had so far. And yeah, thanks for bringing more attention to Long Biofield. And I'll, uh, if you need recommendations of other friends and colleagues to interview, I can put you in touch with some of the coolest people in the field, I think.